0: cut your hair is it just up right now i am
1: i'm wearing Mm
0: -hmm. i gotta look at you see it i can't see what is holding your hair together it's just too dark there's not enough contrast
1: some of those big cloth scrunchies classic here i'll actually i'll take it out and show it to you because it's kind of neat it's kind of neat okay i don't know if the listeners can hear that dog licking of the face
0: oh my gosh that's so cute Oh, wow. That's quite a cute clip. My hair can't stay in a clip like that. Whenever I clip it together like that, it just falls out.
1: Uh, Yeah, you have straighter hair than me. I, you know. Yeah. I have really curly hair. This was an accident, this dog in my lap situation. I was just sitting here and the dog was like, I'm like, going to plop down.
0: Oh, so cute. It's
1: it's such a beautiful situation. Michael. Oh my God. (laughs) Uh, Hello. Hi. um, Hi. Hi
0: um how are you you? no no how are you
1: how am i um well uh i I will reiterate the fact that there is a dog in my lap and it was totally accidental
0: i know that dog is so cute and little i know
1: i know but it's a a, a cute dog and i'll tell you how i am though
0: okay please please do
1: i'm good because i've gone down a new rabbit hole Ooh! i go down a different rabbit hole every month and this month's rabbit hole is apple grafting
0: Apple grafting. Yeah. Got it. Where do you have access to an appropriate place to practice apple grafting?
1: Oh, I don't. This is all very theoretical. Oh,
0: you're just reading about it.
1: I'm reading about, a- I'm just like fantasizing about going with my knife in the woods, right. cutting a branch and grafting it onto another branch and having an apple. And-
0: For listeners who don't know, most apples do not grow what's called true to type. If you plant a seed from a Red Delicious apple, you'll not necessarily grow a Red Delicious apple tree. Usually what happens is commercial growers have rootstock and then they graft the right kind of branch onto it to grow the kind of apple they want.
1: Yeah, and not just commercial growers like just
0: right schlubs like us can do it too.
1: Schlubs like us do it and have weird apples that aren't commercially viable, but like are cool and for whatever reason they taste funny or look silly and, mm-hmm,
0: mm-hmm. and just
1: something about it just tickles the cockles of my heart.
0: Yeah, did you know you can graft potatoes and tomatoes onto each other? I heard about that. So you have a potato plant with potatoes underground and tomatoes above ground.
1: I heard you can also do that with tobacco
0: and potatoes.
1: Maybe I just made that up.
0: It's a wild world out there.
1: Yeah. Anyway, I'm excited. I'm excited about it. How how are you?
0: I am, you know, just positively vibrating with anxiety about stuff I don't super want to talk about on the show, but just know, listeners, my vi- vibrations of anxiety can be felt for miles. But it's cute. My boyfriend took an extra day off work today, so I'm at his house. He's sleeping right now because he works nights, but after I do this recording, I'm going to go pick up challah and candles from the store, and we're going to do Shabbat together. And that's just going to be really precious. And then in between now, and then I'm just going to like watch Netflix and rearrange my Animal Crossing island. Oh, okay, wow. Yeah. So that's all good. Um, You know, sometimes I'm just, have a intimation of an unnameable doom.
1: Oh, yeah, I get the same thing. Yeah. Definitely.
0: I think everyone out there who listens to this show knows what I mean when I say that.
1: We're not allowed to actually be joyful 100%.
0: Right. We would be too powerful.
1: We're not deserving of it, and it's also not physically possible. <laughs>
0: The technology isn't there yet. Well, Michael, enough of this bullshit.
1: Yeah, let's move on to the interesting
0: part of the show. The interesting bullshit. So, dear listeners, this is an episode in our three-part series on Talmud and art. I had the idea for this series because I know a bunch of cool art people, and also I feel like there is some kind of relationship between Talmud and art. I'm not sure quite what it is, so I'm hoping through talking to these people. We will all collectively learn something about that relationship. Our guest today is Nikki Green. Nikki Green is a transdisciplinary artist working primarily in clay. Originally from New England, she completed her BFA in sculpture from the San Francisco Art Institute in 2009, and her MFA in art practice from the University of California, Berkeley in 2018. Her sculptures, ritual objects, and various flat works explore topics of history preservation, conceptual ornamentation, and aesthetics of otherness. Green has exhibited her work internationally, notably in the New Museum, New York, the Contemporary Jewish Museum, San Francisco, and Rockwellman and & Partner Gallery in Berlin, Germany. She has contributed text to numerous publications, including Transgender Studies Quarterly, the Trans Religion Issue, Fermenting Feminism, Copenhagen, and a soon-to-be-published text by the University of Oregon Eugene Center for Arts Research. In 2019, Green was a finalist for the San Francisco Museum of Modern Art's SECA Award, a recipient of an art industry residency from the John Michael Kohler Art Center, among other awards. Green lives and works in the San Francisco Bay Area. Nikki Green, wow, many credits and bona fides. Welcome to the show, Nikki. Hi, how are you?
1: Yeah, hi. How are you?
2: Thank you for having me. I'm doing good. I'm really excited to be here and to get to chat with both of you today. What a treat for this morning.
0: What a treat for us. Nikki, part of the reason, as you know, but our listeners do not know yet, that I had the idea to have you on the show is because we recently worked on an art slash Talmud project together. Would you be down to tell Michael and our listeners a little bit about that project?
2: Sure, I would love to. So the text is part of a series that the Center for Arts Research at University of Oregon, Eugene, is doing called Papers on Power. They are a small group of faculty from U of O. They do a lot of work around art making and sort of creative thought, I guess, is maybe how I would explain it. But I've worked with them in the past. I was invited to come do, I guess it's kind of like a round table discussion using this very kind of dense text by the theorist Timothy Morton called Hyper Objects to sort of think about craft practices and sort of answer this question of like, is craft a hyper object? And it was very satisfyingly like, who is this dude? Like, why are we even talking about this? Which is just really satisfying to me that we're sort of not taking these sort of dense ideas at face value. So that was kind of like my initial contact with them. And then they reached out to me asking if I would be interested in doing a paper on power, quote unquote. I guess I had been thinking prior to that about Talmud as this kind of creative, maybe less linear text or way of generating text. And I thought this might be kind of an interesting way to explore that idea. Like, does the kind of format of Talmud break the linearity of, say, maybe academic text or something? And as, you know, as a visual artist who has worked sort of in and out of academia, I've been sort of really skeptical of my role in that and the expectation that I should be writing academic texts or engaging academic texts in this kind of straightforward way, I guess. And I just thought this could be a really great opportunity to explore the maybe possible break in linearity that Talmud offers. And I approached Hava and Binya Koetz and a friend and colleague, Ida Segev, who is a trans performance artist. So all of these like trans Jews, just sort of like, talk through some of these ideas, and ultimately tried to facilitate this text that engaged Talmud, engaged transness, engaged kind of creative practice. I think we talked a lot about like pedagogy as well, a lot of different topics, but is really kind of Sort of moving in and out of these ideas and really like the format of the text itself does this kind of breaking of linearity in that it's multiple conversations happening simultaneously with a lot of footnotes that are formatted in, I think, kind of interesting and Talmud-esque ways. So it was great. It was really... It was really fun and also really satisfying. I just think it offered a lot to think about in sort of what's possible around, like, not creative writing, but like creative text generation, which I think, as an artist, that's something I'm always kind of considering.
1: Is there a place where people can see this document?
2: Yeah, so the last I heard the plan was to release the text this upcoming Thursday. So I don't know if it will be out yet. But if it is out, then I assume it will just be through the Center for Arts Research website.
1: It's a literal document that looks like a page of Talmud, and it talks about power.
2: Yeah, I mean, I think a lot of the conversations that I was having with Hava and Binia, and the conversation that I had with Ida, ultimately ended up not getting cut, but just kind of like put onto the back burner because there was something kind of satisfying about the context, the point in time with which the conversations were happening, which was my enrolled in Hava and Binia's Trans Girl Talmud 101 class. So there was this sort of like discussing Talmud as a kind of practice as a document as a process while I was studying Talmud
0: right and now the whole thing has become even more recursive because we are having a conversation on a Talmud podcast about a paper about Talmud about
2: a time we studied Talmud
1: (laughs) this is very 2021
2: I feel like. Is it the layering of format and technology and time and space?
1: I'm no artistic expert, but I feel like we're at the cutting edge right now. (laughs) Right now.
0: Oh, definitely. Our podcast is always on the cutting edge.
1: This art that you have both collaborated on with each other is very. Very Talmud-related. <laughs> I want to zoom out. I want to talk about the general collection of art that you have created. And listeners can go and take a look at some of this art at org. How would you categorize your body of work? <laughs> would you categorize your body of work? Do you have multiple bodies of work? Would you describe them as canoes instead of bodies?
2: Canoes as bodies? Interesting. Um <laughs> I I definitely think of them as bodies of work. Yeah, I mean, I, so I work mostly in ceramics. That's kind of my primary material interest. Um, And there's a lot there. I could kind of like talk endlessly about why I love clay. But I also like, I like to describe my practice as transdisciplinary because I guess I'm just not interested in sort of, being limited to a specific material like there's language that people use a lot to sort of self identify as like ceramicists and I think that that's great and also I'm kind of like well what about the watercolors that I do or the you know the writing projects that I take on is that does that get to be an extension of my practice and ultimately related to the you know the ceramic work or the watercolors or the drawings or whatever so I like to call it transdisciplinary to me it's also this kind of like like wink wink nudge nudge around transness that to me my sort of transness is not just my experience of gender but like a lens with which to engage the world so sort of like moving across and between Uh, materials and ideas feels kind of wrapped up in an experience
0: of transness for me. I want to go on a little wild hair here, which is that it's so funny, the way that you were talking about disciplinary limitations. I didn't really think of this before we were in this conversation. But I feel like it's really that way in the Jewish world with text study as well. You know, like there's like Talmud people, and then there's like Bible people and like Midrash people. And like, Everyone knows a little bit, you know, like if you study Talmud, you probably know some Bible as well and vice versa. But it really does tend to be like quite discreet, you know, like if you ask me like a question about Midrash, I have several people in mind who I'm like, oh, I have, that's the person I'll go ask about Midrash. And we have sort of similar like categorical walls in our study disciplines in the Jewish world.
2: Yeah, I mean, I think that categorical walls boundaries are important for a lot of folks. I, yeah, I just think that like the opportunities to kind of move between them is what offers us nuance, you know, like that's, that's what's exciting to me to, to call myself like an artist or like a visual artist, and also be producing text feels really important to me. And it's important to me because it offers this way of kind of engaging thought or idea or, um, I don't know, language, grammar, these things that are intuitively important to me and are maybe not like on the surface, sort of visible in like the ceramic work that I'm doing, but informs it for sure. So I kind of need to be able to move through them. And, And I think that like, I would imagine that a lot of folks who operate in these kind of contained boundaries of specific texts study would probably like talk about like interest in other like means of texts, but just sort of like giving them less weight or importance or like value because of the boundaries of their primary study, maybe.
0: Right. And I mean, I think even within the field of Talmud, like one of the things that makes Talmud as interesting as it is, is that it's sort of transdisciplinary in itself. At times it's legal, at times it's historical. Sometimes it's, you know, just a storybook of fantastic myths. And sometimes it's more like didactic and sort of teaching us how to do Talmud. Even the texts themselves are sort of like, can't really be categorized that way.
1: Certainly like in uh academic computer science world what you describe does happen people are in a certain box and they come to kind of value that box over other boxes (laughs) i think there are also people who and computer scientists fit this description too they think about it differently the box that they're in the more that they explore the box the more they're fascinated with their own box that makes them actually appreciate the boxes that they don't know about the boundaries are a means of discovering wonder those are the most inspiring people to me You looked like you were about to say something, Nikki.
2: I don't know. I was just going to continue to (laughs) go on this like tangent around boxes, boundaries, that kind of thing. But we don't have to.
0: I don't know if we made it clear. We're only talking about boxes on the show today.
2: That's actually what this is about is boxes.
0: Yeah. Which is ironic because all of our guests will be trans girls. So
2: wait, is that true? Oh, amazing. Yeah. Wow. So it's
0: going to be a 100% trans girl series. We don't fuck with anyone else. As it should be. Simply the best.
2: Yeah, totally.
1: So your art, uh, I don't know the fancy words, but it's it's all over the map in the most wonderful sense in terms of medium. But one of the things that I do see, perhaps a box that you are currently exploring, I see an interplay between kind of traditional forms and non-traditional forms, and sacred objects, ritual objects, and... Dicks. Yes. And, and <laughs> lots of penises, lots of penis-related things. But yeah, ritual objects and things that wouldn't be considered ritualistic or holy necessarily. And, and I'm wondering if that's intentional, and I'm wondering if that is a box you're exploring, and if it's somehow connected to Judaism and Talmud.
2: Yeah, I mean... Yes. <laughs> um, <laughs> you heard it here first, folks. <laughs> I feel like I've been engaged in a creative practice for most of my life and like how much weight I've given it or how much like value I've put into that has shifted and evolved over time. And I guess I say that because I feel like I've been able to kind of evolve and develop language around art making and my own practice that is like what it is but i think that you can certainly talk about art however however comes most naturally to you and that's awesome
1: i feel validated thank you i'm glad and that's that's all that this is about it's really about my validation
2: yeah i mean that's what i was brought here for right (laughs) (laughs)
1: absolutely but how would you talk about it how would you want to tell a bunch of gay queer weirdo jew leftists on a pod if you were to imagine how they might be inspired by your work how would you describe that
2: well i guess i would say that i'm really interested in ceramics and functional objects as like an idea sort of what is functional what gets to be functional how do we engage with objects and materials Which to me is very much this kind of thread to Jewishness growing up in a, you know, like a not super actively practicing, like, reform Jewish household, but being kind of obsessed as a child with ritual objects and the kind of objectness, the materiality of the religious practice was intuitive to me. And so I think that as an adult, I sort of really came, I would say back into Judaism after spending many years feeling like my queerness and my transness didn't really have space within the community that I grew up in. And so I kind of like left Jewishness, because I sort of couldn't leave my queerness, I guess, and then came back into Judaism as an adult really through object making and exploring what it meant to be Jewish and be trans and queer through like what maybe trans and queer ritual objects might look like. Like if they were being produced for queer and trans Jews, what would they look like? And so that was really like my entrance into both Jewishness as an adult, but also like object making and kind of functionality. So I'm sort of engaging functional objects, maybe not like making them like I often have folks say like, Oh, will you make me like candlesticks? I mean, sure, you know, for like a friend, (laughs) I would make candlesticks. But like, I don't know that I feel that motivated or kind of interested in making like products that kind of functionality is a little it feels like maybe not flat but just like not what i'm interested in and so a lot of the work i make is sort of like quote unquote like sculptures of functional objects (laughs) objects that are not being engineered to be functional but are sort of in reference to functional forms
0: i just have to say i can't help but be haunted by this collection that exists at tiffany's called tiffany's what is it called their everyday objects yeah everyday objects i just want to i'm gonna go ahead and pop this link in the chat so we can all enjoy this together anyway just know if you look for tiffany's everyday object or tiffany's tin can tiffany's has a whole collection of like incredibly expensive like silver and gold everyday objects so like this one is like an open tin can but it's like made out of sterling silver
1: i love silver if any listener wants to send me like (laughs) sterling silver earrings with amethyst crystal
2: yeah throw that yeah you gotta register at tiffany's (laughs) yeah they have
0: like a two thousand dollar tin can a one thousand dollar silver paper plate um a ball of yarn i don't know what relationship i'm drawing here but i couldn't help but be reminded when i thought about sculptures of functional objects
2: i mean to me i see the parallel with the Tiffany's tin can as this kind of like intentionality and value right like they're like sort of creating this like silver tin can and sort of constructing this form that is like maybe we engage with as like inherently utilitarian it's like there to hold the beans, but if you make it with like the intention to, I don't know, whatever, hold your like very expensive pencils or something. <laughs> right, your silver pencils from Tiffany's. Right. Exactly. Your Tiffany's pencils. I imagine there's probably like a letter holder, like a really fancy letter holder in there as well. Mm-hmm. But like the intentionality becomes like the value making component to it. And so like, yeah, it's like making a making a cup, making a ceramic mug is one thing and then making like a sculpture of a ceramic mug gives it this kind of different intention not that i have sculptures of mugs but like to me that's sort of this like idea like i'm really interested in like fermentation crocs for a while i was making a lot of these crocs and thinking of them as like <sighs> queer ritual objects right like mm-hmm. pickles are or pickle making is like a queer ritual and so the, <laughs> so the crock becomes the The ritual object. And so I was making like sculptures that are like piles of crocs that ultimately like maybe could function but would be really like annoying to try to get to function. And so it's more like, yeah, the idea of the function, the imagined function of the object. I really relate to those
0: crocs as something also that could function, but is really annoying to try to get to function. Also, I just want to say fermentation crocs are the coolest. For anyone who doesn't know, fermentation croc, as I've experienced them, is sort of like this big vase or like big ass jar, like a flower jar. But then the top has this special chamber where you can put water so that when you set the lid in the chamber, it makes a water seal that seals in whatever you're fermenting inside there and automatically releases the air that needs to be released. It's like one of those like brilliantly simple things.
2: Right, and it's about like the ability to release like CO2 from the fermenting whatever sauerkraut, but not let more oxygen into the interior, which could cause mold or some kind of bacteria. Right, and so it's a super simple straightforward functioning object that is also kind of brilliant and also really simple and elegant in that sense. And as an object itself, it's like a cylinder, you know, it's like such a simple form. And I think that there's something really satisfying about the proportions of it. And I just, I really enjoy them. And so to me it's like in the work and research and object interest that i've had over time my work around crocs and fermentation led pretty directly into mikvah and like ritual immersion and sort of thinking about like is the mikvah a croc
0: in, some <laughs> sense. in which we ferment into the most sacred version of ourselves
1: what was that movie we watched hava what was that what movie? The, the
0: Pickle, the guy, the Pickle Oh, factory. an American Pickle, the Seth Rogen movie. Wow, that really is like a whole other layer on this conversation. <laughs> the whole purpose of this series is to explore specifically the relation between art and Talmud. And one thing that I think is interesting, specifically about your creation of ritual objects as art, is I feel like your art of those objects is sort of like a Gemara on the object itself, right? Like, so in Talmud, we start with our Mishnah, which is the earliest layer of the text. And then we have a Gemara, which is sort of filling us in more on that text and iterating on it and going even further. And it happens after a long period of time after the Mishnah, actually. So if you like make a mikvah or you make a fermentation crock or whatever other ritual object you make, like you are in a way sort of bringing that into a new place and time and and making your own argument in the physical realm
1: right right it's like in the mishnah it's like the mikvah needs to be this size and then the talmud is maybe a little bit of that but also like oh it starts with a mem because blah 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 and really what you (laughs) should be feeling is like when you're inside it you should feel like a pickle like really feel the pickleness
2: right and like this idea of like Right. Here are the boundaries. Here's the box around like what a mikvah is. And then as an artist, it's like kind of my job, I think, to be like, but what about this? What about this? What about this? And what if it looks like this? And what if I, you know, like lift it up onto like this platform? Or what if I like augment it with this thing? Sort of like asking questions and expanding on the maybe not straightforwardness of the, say, the Mishnah of it all, right? Like the kind of (laughs) the straightforwardness of what it is and how it functions that like when I call myself like an artist and not like a potter, I'm saying like, I'm not here to make the crock. I'm here to sort of like explore what the crock is or what like the limits of the crock are. You're
1: trying to rock the crock. (laughs) yes
2: rock the croc um you're here to croc block yes croc destroyer yeah (laughs) yeah i just i'm not trying to be like like sort of place value or like a lack of value on those who make the crocs and make them well and sort of do the functional work because i think that that's important we like have to have folks who do that I just think that, you know, again, sort of what's inherent in my transness is, like, I'm just not interested in, like, taking the thing at face value. Like, I I need to kind of expand and extrapolate and evolve whatever the thing is and to me that's like also what i think talmud is doing and what i was really hoping for with this text that we did together where it was like is talmud trans let's explore it
0: (laughs) (laughs) this feels like a little bit of a trite metaphor but i feel like that's our job as talmudists also right as we have our clay which is essentially like the jewish tradition and all its attendant texts which have very clear boundaries about what they are and are not and what they're saying and what they're not saying and then it's our job in every generation to sort of come as learners and say what about this what about this what about that you know and that that's a process that's been going on for for hundreds of years yeah
1: do you have any ritual objects jewish or otherwise that you feel like you want to do this process with
2: your next victim (laughs) Yeah, I mean, I'm continuing to think obsessively about water rituals. A couple years ago, I made to my sort of, or like within my experience, like the largest single objects that I have made single largest single like quote unquote mikvahs, mikvah-esque, mikvah adjacent objects. After making them, it was like many, many, many hundreds of pounds of clay and a lot of labor. And my reaction after that was like, okay, now I'm going to make something small. Like I need to make the small version of this. My back hurts. Like I need to kind of engage differently. And so to me, like a lot of these things are pushing off of what came before them. So I make the huge thing and then I make the small thing. And then I make the even smaller thing. And then I make the kind of bigger than that, you know, like just kind of playing with scale and configuration. So lately I've been really obsessed with five gallon buckets.
1: Yeah, I noticed the five gallon buckets and almost like a um, three dimensional beehive texture underneath kind of like morals, like mushrooms, mushrooms and buckets and pedestals like mosaic pedestals. Yeah, great.
2: I love that observation. Okay, great.
1: Hava, the artist, loved my observation. <laughs> <laughs>
2: um, I've been really obsessed with um, fungus as this kind of trans and queer and Jewish metaphor. The kind of reference point was this children's book of Nazi propaganda called The Poisonous Mushroom, which wow. is sort of, yeah, it's it's intense and Maybe I just have enough distance from it that I'm like, this is so fucked up and so amazing. Like, I just want to talk about this all the time. And so the like narrative in the book is like, you can't eat every mushroom you find because it might be poisonous and you can't trust every person you meet because they might be Jewish and like, try to kill you or something. But just this idea that like Jews as poisonous mushrooms... Is really fascinating to me. And so I started using this kind of craggy cellular fungus texture in a lot of the sculpture that I was doing to kind of build these like big organic forms and kind of build out the rigidity of a like a functional form. So I'll have these like stands, these like five gallon bucket stands that are kind of exploding out into fungus and this kind of hybrid relationship between fungus and kind of static functional object but the bucket itself to me is like what I'm interested in it is like such an amazing ritual object because it is so utilitarian this thing that we sort of operate with in the world to do everything it's like so ubiquitous but it actually like proportionally is like such a satisfying shape and object and while I was at a Svara was like a Gemara boot camp. I was talking to somebody about Tahara rituals like death and dying and specifically like washing the dead rituals. And this person was like, oh, you know, it's like really hard to navigate like a body into a mikvah. So we just like pour water over the body. You know, and the ceramicist in me is like, what is the vessel that <laughs> that you use to pour the water? And they were just like,
1: It's a Tiffany can that's made out of <laughs> silver.
2: Okay. It should be a Tiffany can, right? A Tiffany five gallon bucket. Yes. Oh my gosh. I want that so badly. But the person was like, Oh, Home Depot five gallon buckets. And it blew my mind because it's such a like, it's almost like kind of crassly. <laughs> Like, you know, it's like orange and it has like the Home Depot logo on it. And one, how dare you? And two, um, I'm obsessed with the kind of holiness of the Home Depot five gallon bucket. And so I just started making buckets, making stands for You know, plastic buckets to kind of like lift them up off the floor and make them kind of ritual objects, you know, just kind of like playing with the bucket itself.
1: I'm just thinking costume jewelry. Someone needs to put rhinestones all over a bucket.
2: Carry it as a handbag. Yeah. I
0: just want to name an aqueous ritual object that I have been obsessed with for a while now, which is kiddish cups or like Shabbat cups, specifically like these kiddish cups where it's like one big goblet in the middle and you fill it up and then there are all these little spouts that pour out into other little goblets at the base. And that's what you take from. I don't know if you've seen this. No. Um, it is like...
1: I got a picture in my head and I, I yeah, like it.
0: Yeah, I'm trying to find like an image. I wish I knew like a technical term to name, like the kind of vessel. Oh, kiddish fountain, maybe if you Google kiddish fountain.
1: Is this like a chocolate fountain at a bar mitzvah, but like <laughs> for wine?
0: It is much more incredible. Wow. Kiddish fountains, yes. I hope you both are Googling Kiddish fountains. Doing it, right. I think the first time I saw one was in some Jewish movie or, or Jewish documentary.
1: Oh, I see. Yep.
0: And from the moment I saw it, I was like, how is it possible that I don't have one of these?
1: You are kind of like a magpie for Judaica.
0: Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. So this is like now my piece of Judaica that I really want to acquire. So I just wanted to bring it into all of your consciousnesses because okay, yeah. it's just spectacular.
2: Yeah, it's beautiful. And I have so many sort of questions about the anatomy of this object, like mm-hmm. how quickly the wine is drained.
0: Right. And I mean, there's a whole halakha question, right? Because there's very specific ways in which you need to pour the Kiddush wine and i've seen debates about whether kiddish fountains are kosher for people who are strictly observant about that particular issue so there's a, there's a lot contained in this little fountain
2: yeah quite magical and performative mm-hmm. in its configuration i love that I also just want somebody to make like a ritual chocolate fountain <laughs> to be like a thing.
0: It's interesting because what I was thinking is that I want you to make a kiddish fountain of five-gallon buckets.
2: Oh, yeah.
0: Or it's like a giant five-gallon bucket, and or it's like a 50-gallon like oil thing. Drum. And then like five, 10 five-gallon buckets around the base.
2: I mean... Thank you for that. I'm (laughs) going to go make some notes when we're done talking. But actually, something that, like a sort of reference point that's been really exciting to me in the past was like these two big baths, I guess, ritual baths. It feels like hard to call them mikvahs because they don't follow any of the real protocol around like what constitutes a mikvah. Again, it's sort of like, right, the Gemara of it all. It's like mikvah adjacent or in conversation with mikvah-ness. So I just kind of refer to them as like ritual baths. But prior to making them, I had gone to visit the Mormon temple in Oakland because like Jewish News Weekly, like the sort of Northern California Jewish newspaper went to visit this Mormon temple and like brought in a photographer to like take photos of all of their kind of ritual spaces. And they have a baptismal font that is like this enormous tub on the back of 12 life-size cast-iron oxen, and I was like, mind-blown. <laughs> yeah, what is I, this? I'm in love. With, I want it for my house.
1: I've been to the Mormon, uh, you know, temple in uh, Salt Lake City. Their aesthetics, unique, just like beautiful. Top-notch. Just the gayest shit ever. <laughs> the Mormons, they got it down. They know how to make well, iconic. Well, I mean, their whole
0: thing was started with like scripture on two golden plates you know which is like the tiffany's version of the ten commandments
2: <laughs> totally it is. we as jews get like the commandments like carved into stone and the mormons get like gold plates totally it is like the tiffany's of the ten commandments so i saw this tub and was like this is nuts like what is this and then lo and behold it's appropriated from Solomon's temple that this like was mm. the design that was sort of like appropriated and then used in like every Mormon temple. It's like standard. Wow. wow. But in sort of doing more research, this form, which is called the molten sea is the enormous baptismal font. I guess the enormous mikveh that is surrounded by 10 small lavers for the koanim to wash in. So there is this kiddish fountain thing about the origins of these objects, maybe.
0: Wow, I think we're getting about to the point where we should wrap up.
1: I guess so. This was great. Thank you so much for coming on the show.
0: Yeah, when I planned for you to come on the show, I had all these texts and ideas and things we were going to talk about, but we talked about totally different things. And I love that for us. I'm not sure what direction I've moved in my understanding of the relationship between art and Talmud, but I've definitely moved somewhere. I'm not sure if I'm closer. It may have just been a lateral move. Maybe I'm just, uh, as Bene Lapi of Spara likes to say, confused on a higher level now.
2: <laughs> oh
0: no, sad dog.
1: Yeah, Grunge Girl just left the apartment. Um, <laughs> Skeeter! That's okay. Um, <laughs> I'll, I'll edit around the dog.
0: Skeeter, come here, come here. Come here. Hi. Okay.
1: <laughs> I love the idea of art being like Gamara. I'm, I'm a big fan of water and water objects. I love it. It's, it's one of my favorite elements.
2: <laughs> yeah, closing thoughts.
1: <laughs> closing thoughts.
2: I feel like... Every instance of kind of back and forth offers something. I'm one of those people who sort of needs to process outwardly, verbally, in order to kind of understand what it is that is sort of happening, really about anything. But I just say that because I'm thinking about like the text that we did together, Hava, I think offered so much about like what it means to teach and engage sort of information with students in the world together. And I'm also sort of after having this conversation with you, both thinking about sort of art making as this engagement with Gamara or like the idea of like what's happening with Gamara or the relationship between Mishnah and Gamara. And so I think that there's a lot there, maybe not like on a material level in visual art making, but definitely there conceptually.
0: Yeah, I love that. I think that's a big part of what I'm taking away today as well and also sort of thinking about my process and our process as a teacher and as a podcaster as also sort of like in a similar vein producing iterations on an object and on an idea well dearest listeners thank you for tuning in today to this episode in our three-part series about art and talmud we would love for you to give us a call and leave us a voicemail on the Talmud hotline at 401 484 1619. Also, you know, like do all the stuff. Tell your friends about us. Share our episodes on social media. Become a patron. Just like say nice things about us. Tell us that our hair looks cute and that um, you're not mad at us and that you love us. We're very needy. Nikki, do you have anything that we should plug?
2: I have a handful of exhibitions up in the bay right now one at the de Rosa Center for Contemporary Art in Napa at San Francisco Art Institute and then also at the Berkeley Art Center and those are all group shows that I'm in if you want to see my art in person but also I try to keep my website pretty up to date with upcoming and current exhibitions and kind of what I'm working on
1: What's the website again?
2: Nickkigree.org and my Instagram is Nikki Green Studio. If folks want to engage me there,
0: listeners, go follow Nikki. Look at her art. It is dope. Go see it in real life if you're in the Bay. And we will talk to you all again soon.
1: Yeah, talk to you soon.
0: Okay. Shabbat.
1: Shabbat.